Sound good? Sounds good. All right. Here's the first question. And I think this is a question that's on a lot of our minds. Is God responsible for the coronavirus? And if so, why did he send it? Yeah, we're starting off easy. Good. <laughs> good. Yeah, slow pitch over home base, Pastor PJ. Come on. Right, right, right. Um, short answer. Uh, is God responsible? Uh, well, God is sovereign. We know over all of creation, over the entire universe. I think when you look at um, the book of Job, the opening chapters, you see Satan even having to come before God uh, and ask permission to torment Job. Um, so even when we ask the question, if we want to spin it to just in general suffering, and then I'll come back to coronavirus, uh, Satan goes before God and, and has to get God's permission before he's able to afflict Job. So even the question, who's responsible for Job's suffering? Is it Satan or God? Well, the answer is really both. Um, right. And so as we look at a virus, a sickness, uh, clearly this is not, we're not going to go and say this is the direct response to this person's sin or that group of people's sins at all. But it is the re result of sin and the fact that we live in a fallen world. Genesis chapter three, um, as part of the consequence, God curses creation. In fact, if you guys have listened to Pastor Mike's weekend sermon yet, uh, he talks about creation groaning under the weight of the fall uh, from Romans chapter eight. So as God is sovereign over fallen creation, he is sovereign over this virus. It didn't catch him off guard. Um, he could end it today if he chose. Uh, he is so far has not chosen to, to bring it to an end. Uh, the question as to why, I think there could be a lot of different responses to that. Uh, Pastor Rod, if you would agree with me on that, I mean, I don't know that we can pinpoint one reason over another. Um, but there was an article written early on in all this uh, from, I think, CCEF, with, which is a Christian counseling uh, blog that talked about how God sometimes uses things like this to remind us of our dependence on him that we need him. And certainly uh, when, when we're put in a situation like this, like none of us have ever been in before, that's, that's one of the, I think, applications of this is to remind ourselves of how much we're dependent on God. Yeah. And I would add to that. Uh, it, it's, it's irresponsible of Christians to really declare with any sense of authority. This is exactly why God is sending the coronavirus. Um, there is a lot of things that we can take from this that would be helpful for us to say, well, yeah, this is a this is a, a helpful way to think about it. For instance, I agree with Pastor PJ, all things come from God. God is ultimately sovereign of everything, but God is not responsible for evil. Um, all throughout scripture, you have the repeated refrain that God is righteous and he is just. And so the first thing I would, I would advise us is never pointing our finger at God and saying, well, God, you are responsible for this evil thing among us. But really, the fingers have to be pointed back at us. And as, as Pastor Peter already pointed out, Genesis 3 makes it clear that we are the reason that sin is in the world. We are the reason that sin invades, and we are the reason that the whole creation is cursed. Uh, but so, so one of the things we can say, as, as Pastor Mike likes to say often, is that God is fulfilling his promise to curse the earth. And this is one of those ways that God is doing that. Um, and so uh, God is responsible. I mean, God is uh, ultimately responsible, but he's not directly responsible for evil acts in themselves. Again, that's that's our piece that we have to own. Um, is God judging America? I've heard some people say that God is judging us. And I guess and, and in a sense, there's always a, that there's always that question of are we being judged? But can we say that heavy handedly and saying, absolutely, this is the case? No, we can't. But we can definitely uh, we can definitely have a sense of a of fear of God, a healthy sense of fear of recognizing your own vulnerability and being sure that as Jesus said, uh, when he was confronted with the tower that uh, Jesus said, and you need to repent lest you too likewise perish. Jesus message wasn't, Hey, don't what, don't worry about it. You know, God loves everybody. Things are fine. Jesus said, no, you need to repent lest you too likewise perish. So if there's anything we can say with confidence, it's what scripture says. The scripture says that Jesus says we need to repent lest we perish. And we need to be aware that all of us are vulnerable to death. All of us are vulnerable to be, uh, to be judged by God. And this is one of those times that we need to be especially aware of that. All right. Excellent. That's the first question. That was an easy one. Let's, let's continue on with another, another easy one. All right, Pastor PJ, here you go. How should we go about proving to non-Christians that God 
actually exists. And I copied and pasted this, by the way. So the fact that Christians is misspelled is not my fault. That's that's all right. That's all right. Grace, right? Grace and uh, Grace. charity in, in all things, right? That's right. Um, yeah. I, I, again, here, kind of like, why did God send the coronavirus? If it, I wish that there was one surefire, this is the way that you prove to a non-Christian that God actually exists. Um, but in, on the other hand, I think there's a, a blessing that we have in that there's, there's a lot of different avenues that we can go down with that. It's, we're really talking about the field of apologetics uh, with this. And so, um, you know, there are some that you're going to be able to do what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter one and, uh, and argue from creation. And you can look at not just mountains and oceans and point to the existence of a creator, but you can look at the fine tuned nature of our universe. You can look at the detail of a strand of DNA. You can look at the design of the human eyeball. You can look at um, the force of gravity, how if it were off by a degree one way or the other, we would either be crushed under the weight of our own bodies or we would float into the, the atmosphere. You can look at the tilt of the Earth's axis. So that's called the teleological argument, which means we're going to argue from design that there is an intelligent designer, that this couldn't have happened just by chance. Uh, but then there are other arguments for the existence of God, like the moral argument for the existence of God. In other words, where does morality come from? If God doesn't exist, there is no one outside of the box. In other words, if you think about you and I, we live inside of the box of creation. And if there's no one that lives outside of the box to tell us what is right and wrong, then we have no way of, of holding to any sort of objective standard of what is okay to do and what's not okay to do. But what we find is that mankind lives by morals. And so that that innate desire that we have to live in morals again points to the existence of God. So there's others as well, but uh, is there a surefire way? No, I think it's, it's about spending time with the person that you're trying to, uh, to, to witness to, to get to know them, to get to know where they're coming from, what their background is, and even to try different approaches in this process. Yeah. And, and I would say to, along with pastor PJ, that that relational element is probably more important than your actual ability to intellectually defend the Christian religion. It's important. It's definitely not a, a non-issue, but having that connection with people is going to serve you much better than having all the answers up front. Because for most people, it's not about having sufficient evidence. That's as a, as Jesus says, you don't, you, you don't, you choose not to believe me. And one time he was telling the Pharisees, you don't want to believe me because you want to keep your power. You, you're, you're obstinate, not because you don't see the miracles, not because you don't see what I'm doing, but because you like your position of authority. And so when it comes for, when it comes to our ability to connect with our, our friends, our relatives who are non-Christians, it really is, it's the starting place of, they will know that you are my disciples, but how you love one another, the, the Christian demeanor, is going to be a powerful apologetic when you add all the intellectual arguments. And the intellectual arguments are there. Pastor PJ laid out a ton of them. Uh, but really, I wonder how effective those things are when, it, when it's coming from a person who, uh, let's say, has all the arguments. You know, here's the teleological, the, uh, the, the, the other illogical arguments, and yet <laughs> is doing it in a way that it doesn't convey, like, man, I care about you and yeah, I, I know this to be true, but I don't hold it like, a, like an arrogant, you know, whatever kind of person. I care about you as a person. So how do you go about proving Christians that God actually exists? Show the fruit in your life and then graciously and patiently help them think through the actual arguments themselves. Um, because really, it's, it's, it's foolish to say that there is no God. Um, and that's what the scriptures say. Psalm 14, uh, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And it's clear when you look around, there's stuff. In fact, if you even think about human consciousness for just a moment, where does human consciousness come from? How does that even arise from uh, material, uh, from material matter? If you look at the sun, the moon, the stars, nothing is conscious the way that we are. Humans are made in the image of God, and therefore we possess, we can explain this, we possess God's image, and therefore we, we understand, we see, we perceive. Uh, but when it comes to creation as a whole, that doesn't, that doesn't happen. And if you're, if you're working from a purely Darwinian evolutionary background, how does consciousness arise? And at what point does it arise? And how does it arise? It's impossible. It's impossible. So Christianity has a lot of intellectual backing. But again, as, as Pastor PJ said, and I would reaffirm in a lot of different ways, the, the relational element is going to serve you much more 
than just having the intellectual arguments ready to go. And one more thing on that too, if I can, Pastor Rod, is, uh, is prayer, guys. I mean, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says that we're not up against an intellectual battle in this. Um, it says the God of this world has blinded the eyes of the lost there. So it's not as though they don't have enough information. It's as though they need, and they do, they need God to intervene. They need God to right. uh, remove the, the scales from their eyes so that they can see. And that's not going to be something that you can do. Uh, and so you got to be praying. You got to be praying for these people, praying for them by name, praying for them, specifically asking God to uh, reveal himself to them and to save them. That's right. Amen. Okay, let's continue on. Next question here. This is a fun one. Uh, there we go. How was the Bible assembled? There's two questions here, which is why I divided it up. How was the Bible assembled? And how did God decide who got to write each part of the Bible? Yeah, uh, again, um, man, we're not, uh, we're not swimming in the shallow end, are we? Yeah, the, uh, the Bible, again, is, as you're dealing with apologetics, let me recommend a resource for you guys really quick on, on this. If you want to, if you're really saying, hey, this is something I, I care a lot about, um, Josh McDowell, Sean McDowell's big, gigantic book, Pastor Rod's probably mentioned it already in, in the past, uh, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, is going to go through a lot of this stuff. Uh, but even Frank Turk's book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, is a great resource for you guys to um, to just begin to read through with some of this that's going to answer some of these questions and give you some evidence. But let's take the first one. How is the Bible assembled? Um, well, it, it wasn't just handed down from God out of heaven in its form that we currently have it at. Uh, it was a, a process. Right. I know. It's crazy, right? Um, no, it was a, a process, and uh, it was compiled through... Uh, unique circumstances, specific context that the individual authors were writing in. And God was using them during that specific time, but also because the Bible is inspired. In other words, it's God's words on paper. Um, those words that he was having them write were words that were going to be useful for all time, no matter what our circumstances. So uh, these letters were written or these books were written and they were preserved. And part of that was a just a, a God thing. Um, that there's, there was a, a way that he was superseding and, and sovereignly overseeing the compilation of these books. Um, when we look at things like the Dead Sea Scrolls, we see uh, a lot of similarities. In fact, almost entirely the, this, the same Old Testament that we have today. So we can trace it back and see that these were books that were held on to by, uh, by first the Jewish community and then believers, Christians for, for time after that. But when we get in the New Testament, uh, specifically, um, th th one of the main factors was apostolic authorship. So was this written by somebody who was an apostle of Jesus Christ? Can we trace this letter back to Peter, James, John, uh, Jude, somebody who was, was there with Christ? And can we trust the authority that way? And then also answering the question, are these letters that the church has been circulating for a long time? Uh, people want to throw out books like the Gospel of Judas and the Gospel of Thomas and say, well, they have the word gospel in front of them. Why aren't they the Bible? Part of the problem with those is the earliest manuscript evidence that we have of those is the second or third century, the third century, really, which is separated from the life of Christ by almost 300 years. So that's obviously that's going to be a, a significant problem for us. Um, and so we look at that and we say, well, that wasn't part of the original uh, writing of scripture. So. Um, manuscript evidence, which, by the way, if your teachers are teaching you Plato or Socrates or Caesar's Gaelic Wars in school, the Bible has uh, has an infinite number of more, not literally, but has a ton more manuscript evidence than any of those books do uh, to support it in its accuracy. So that was a, a jumbled response to that. Pastor Rod, do you want to clean that up? <laughs> yeah, that was a great response, Pastor PJ. Lots of good information there. Um, I, I think the short answer for, for you, whoever's asking this, is, is A, that the, the Bible was assembled through a process. I mean, we're talking about a couple thousand years here of writing right. and assembling. Early on, when the Bible was first assembled, you have the, the prophet Moses who hears from God on the mountain and preserves those writings in order to prepare Israel to enter into the promised land in order to help them recall the things that God has said and live those things out. And so from the very beginning of biblical history, you see God taking great effort, great pains to help his people remember the things that he's saying to them because they're important. 
And so that process began with Moses and continued all the way until you have the Apostle John, who, who writes the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, in about AD 90. And so through, uh, you know, about 2000 BC to AD 90, you have about 2100 years uh, of scripture being compiled, written, and uh, written, compiled, and preserved. How that took place was, I think sometimes we can oversimplify it, but it, I mean, the process was, okay, it's a long process. And, and because I anticipated this answer, I have a couple of resources that I want to point you to. Uh, the one that Pastor PJ already said was a good one, the, uh, the evidence that demands a verdict, which is why I already had it on my desk. That's a really good, that's a good uh, resource for a lot of different things, and it's really thick, too. If you don't want to read it, this can double as a weapon. You don't need to buy a gun during the coronavirus. You can just buy this book, and boom, you take it. Um, there's another book that's shorter, but specifically focuses on the Bible itself. Let me try to get that glare out of the way. How we got... How We Got the Bible by Timothy Paul Jones. Um, I like it because there's lots of pictures. There's lots of pictures in this. I don't know if you could tell, but there's lots of pictures. It's kind of like a magazine, but thicker. Uh, this is a really great resource that you can get. And since you have a ton of time right now, I also had two additional resources that I wanted to point you to. Let me stop sharing for a quick moment and take you to those resources that I, I thought would be really helpful for you. Uh, the first resource that I wanted to point you to is by our very own Pastor Mike. Boom. And that's going to be found on the Focal Point website. I can't get it before I want to check on it. You guys are seeing that, right? Good. Okay, thank you. Thank you for nodding. I can see you guys, so thank you for nodding. Origins of the Bible series. This was done a little bit ago, but uh, the, whole, the whole text is helpful. It starts from why is this so important, the communication of God's message, understanding biblical inspiration, um, we're talking a little bit about canonicity. He talks, he talks about that, comparing ancient manuscripts. Pastor PJ mentioned manuscripts. And right now we have about 5,200 to 5,600 manuscripts uh, starting as early as possibly the first century, all the way until the Middle Ages. And uh, I think, yeah, I think we go up to about the Middle Ages, give or take. And so it's a long and complex history. But all throughout this, I think one of the things that you'll walk away with walk away with is a greater appreciation for how God uh, inspired the word and preserved the word. It's really cool. So Origins of the Bible series, that's on focal point. You can see that there. And another another resource that just came free on the web on the web is by Ligonier. And it's called New Testament Canon, a teaching series by Michael Kruger. It's short, it's pithy, there's a study guide that goes along with it. Super interesting and super helpful. Highly recommend uh, all of those resources to you, and it would be a great use of your time right now as you consider uh, as you consider how you best spend your time during the coronavirus quarantine. So those are some resources. Uh, the short answer again, it's a long process, complex, and yet God shows that he's been faithful to preserve his word through the time, uh, through that process, and those are some good resources about that. Anything to add to that, Pastor PJ? Just that second question, how did God choose who got to write the Bible? Um, you know, there's, there's about 40 different authors in the Bible. And one of the amazing things too, when you look at, you know, the, the vast history of how many thousands of years it took in the, the compilation of writing of the Bible there, um, 40 authors, 2,100 years or so, and there's one storyline. And that storyline agrees all the way through. Um, and it, it, so if you took 40 people and you told 40 people, random people throughout 21 years, uh, 2,100 years of history, and you said, I want all of you to write a book or two books, or in Paul's case, you know, 12 books, 13 books, whatever. And, uh, and I want you all to write these books and I want them all to agree with each other after 2,100 years. What are the chances you think that that would actually happen? And when we look at the Bible, you, you see a book that's 66 books, but there's one thread throughout the entire thing. And that's God's uh, redemption historical uh, outline. That's the, the story of salvation, the story of what he's doing from the fall uh, to, to the, the final culmination. And so that's another evidence of, of the Bible's veracity there. But 40 people, how did God choose them? He decided. He decided that Moses was going to write the Pentateuch. He decided that you know, Jeremiah was going to be a prophet that he was going to use at that time. Sometimes it was based on who they were, uh, that they were righteous people in the midst of an unrighteous group of people. And so God chose them and, and used them in that way, especially the prophets. Uh, but it wasn't as though there was like a cue or anything else like, hey, I want to write the Bible 
pick me, choose me. Um, it was just that God and his sovereignty grabbed people and used them the way that he still uses people today, although we're not in writing the inspired words of God anymore. Amen. Good answer. Okay. Someone put a, a question in the, uh, in the, uh, the, the questions document that I thought I would want, I, I wanted to show you guys. It's not quite a question, but uh, it's a quote by Mark Twain that says, when a man loves cats, I am his friend and comrade without further introduction. Mark Twain. Let the record show that all men are fallen and sinful. And therefore, that's why the gospel becomes all the more necessary. We are fallen. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. And we are justified by his grace as a gift to the redemption that comes through Christ Jesus. So with that said, I would watch that sport. That, huh? I would, I would watch, watch that, that sport. sport <laughs> Throwing cats, that should be an Olympic sport. I would be all over that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's absolutely true. I love, for whatever reason, these people like hitting their cats with their, is that Vladimir Putin hitting his cat with a, anyway. Okay. Thank you to whoever submitted that. That gave me a juggle. All right, this kind of goes along, along the lines of what someone else asked, but this was a good question. Why are non-Christians today expected to just believe based off the evidence in the Bible, whereas in the past they were able to see evidence in real life which justified and explained Christianity? I think, uh, I, I don't know who this person is who submitted it, but I'm guessing they're probably referring to the miracles. You know, Jesus turned uh, water into wine. He gave the blind sight. He gave, uh, he helped the lepers, uh, the lepers walk. You made the lepers walk. So I guess with that in mind, Pastor TJ, would your, would your answer to this, which we kind of already touched on, would your answer to this change at all if the person is asking, well, uh, why doesn't God just show us a sign? Why doesn't he just give us a miracle to help us believe that he is who he is? Why doesn't he just write his name in the sky? I am the God of the Bible, Yahweh, believe in me. Uh, is right. there anything else that you would, would you change your answer at all given those, that, that criteria? No, I mean, again, I would go back to 2 Corinthians 4. I think the same problem existed with those that were the original followers of Christ that saw the miracles as exist today. And that is not a, an issue of evidence, uh, but an issue of God opening eyes, God regenerating, God giving faith to believe that Christ is the Savior that they need. I mean, Jesus said that, you know, the Jews demand signs and uh, right. and he even refused to do signs sometimes because he knew that it, it wasn't about seeing a miracle happen, walking on water, feeding the 5,000 that was going to save people. So many people saw him do those things and said, meh, you know, I mean, that's the Jewish response anyways. Um, <laughs> the Hebrew for no, uh, but they, they saw him do those things and they, they, they weren't interested in believing him. So I don't think the writing in the sky or the walking on water or the raising the dead is going to do any better today. In fact, I'm confident it wouldn't than preaching the gospel that we now have in the word of God. I would add to that, that everybody has an authority that they're ultimately going to point to, to justify their reasons for their belief in something. For Christians, it makes sense that we're going to point to the Bible because that is our ultimate authority. God is the one who is behind that book and he's the one who has given it to us. And so when push comes to shove for the Christian, when it comes to our epistemology, we're going to say, well, how do you know what you know is true? We're going to say, well, scripture tells me this. Uh, the question then, is that a reasonable and warranted belief? And I think you can absolutely make the case that believing scripture to be true and holding it as your highest authority because it's God's authority is very reasonable and very practical given the evidence that surrounds us. Scripture has explanatory power. I think I quoted this to you earlier. That's a great Kolko's line. Scripture has powerful explanatory power for the, for the, the way things are, for the nature of humanity, for uh, the reason for coronavirus and sickness and illness, and the reason for the way things are around us. So when we look at scripture, we look at the world around us through the lens of scripture. And C.S. Lewis has his great quote, and I'm totally going to butcher it. He says, I don't believe that the sun exists because I look at the sun. I believe that the sun exists because by, by it, I see everything else. It was something like that. I mean, C.S. Lewis probably should have said, I just said it. That was better than he said it. But you get the idea. We can understand the world around us because scripture helps us to understand with great clarity everything else. It is our highest authority. Having said that, 
That doesn't mean that we can't look at a whole host of other academic disciplines and make a really strong and compelling case for why we believe Scripture is, uh, and, and Jesus more particularly, is God's manifest message. In fact, that's what Hebrews chapter 1 says. Long ago, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created everything, essentially. Colossians 1.15 also says this. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, which I'm going to talk to you guys about next weekend. So, we point scripture because it reveals Jesus, and Jesus reveals God uh, because he is God incarnate. So there's a lot of good evidence for this, and there's a lot of academic disciplines that, again, support what scripture teaches. In fact, we can thank the Bible, we can thank God for all the things that we really do enjoy today. Scientists of the past didn't see this inseparable chasm between theology and science. They wed them, and they said, how do we best think God's thoughts after him? And that's where you have you have all of modern day science that really has its has its backbone from what scripture previously taught. So anyway, it's not a lack of evidence. It really is a lack of desire to believe. And Jesus makes that clear. You ask for a sign, but you're not going to get one because really the sign's not going to help you. And you, I also think about the the parable of uh, of Lazarus, the rich man Lazarus, and uh, excuse me, the poor man Lazarus and the rich man Lazarus, and they go to Abraham's bosom. And he says, the, the rich man says, please send someone back to talk to my brothers. And then God says, if they're not going to believe Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe if someone rose from the dead. It's not a matter of evidence. It's a matter of the heart being receptive to God's truth. That was a long answer, but I'm going to stop now. All right. Uh, next question. We have a couple more lined up in the queue, guys. But I want to, oh, we have actually several more if you're not asking questions. So. Uh, Abby or Evan, is there any good question that's come into the comment section that you want to throw at us right now? I'll take that as a no. Not yet. Make sure you send it to me or the, the chat. Yeah, so if you have a pressing question that you want to ask, please submit it in the chat or in a few moments. I'm going to open it up to, to a raised hands and audio. So if you want to stick around for that, that's coming up soon. Here's a more personal and pastoral question, Pastor PJ. I can't stop myself from hurting myself. I don't know why I do it, but I do, and people tell me it's not okay. I'm guessing we're talking about self-harm here. What does the Bible say about why it's not okay to hurt yourself, and how do I stop myself from doing it? Yeah. yeah this is, I, I know, a, a big issue, a prevalent issue, um, not just in, in high school. It's one that uh, we deal with in, with our college students as well. Um, you know, if you're looking for a chapter and verse on something like cutting or a chapter and verse on self-harm, you're not going to find it specifically mentioned. But here's what the Bible teaches us. The Bible teaches us, uh, according to the opening book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, that you have been created in God's image. Um, that he created you not randomly, not without purpose, but he created you with a, a very specific reason in mind, uh, that he loves you, that his desire is that you would come to faith and repentance in Christ and that you would become his son or his daughter and that he wants you to be with him for all of eternity as far as uh, the the rest of, of what, what happens after this life goes. I think when we look at self-harm, there's a lot of different reasons why, and I don't want to simplify why, um, but it's it's your identity, and, and that's what I think the Bible teaches us so clearly, uh, that God has created you, and that God has created you to be His, and that if you are a believer, uh, the Bible also teaches us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's a dwelling place of, of God Himself through His Spirit as He takes up residence within you, and so um, to, to harm yourself is really to harm God's temple that he is has redeemed for him and for his purposes and for his uh his use uh, and not ours so um you know i think one of the biggest things i would encourage you with and point you to is the hope of who you are in christ your identity in christ is is you are if you are in christ you are his son you are his daughter um and that that is the the greatest reality that you could ever know on that front that was great pastor pj yeah, uh, I think the reason why is a big deal. I would want to I would want to know what 
you're getting out of this person. I don't want to know what's driving the motivation behind your desire to do this. And, and really, no matter what the desire is, no matter what exactly it is that you're trying to accomplish with self-harm, whether it's escapism or whether it's a sense of feeling some kind of satisfaction and, and, and feeling the pain, uh, for all of us, the problem with our heart is that we long for other gods. We want gods that are going to serve us better than the God that we currently have. And that's why in today's DVR, Joshua commands the people, he says, be very careful to love the Lord your God. It's important because, and then he goes through a long list of the reasons why, and part of it is the judgment that, that would be invited by them if they disobeyed. But when we search for other gods, we, whether it's food or cutting or, or Instagram or friendships, all of us are trying to scratch an itch that really only God should be doing. So in this case, young person, if you're hurting yourself, I would ask first and foremost, what's the driving desire behind that? What idol are you creating that needs to be directed to God, repented of and directed to God? Uh, again, it's, if, it's a, if it's a desire for feeling, I would say, Lord, I'm sorry that I am, I am not content with, with what you've given me. I'm not content with prayer. I'm not content with my Bible. I'm not content with the community of faith. I'd rather, I'd rather injure myself. Or if it's, if it's a form of escapism of trying to uh, isolate your pain and kind of leave it out there, I would say, God, I'm sorry that forgive me for not coming to you and confessing my sin and repenting of it from there and leaving it there. Now, again, the, the reason why is a big part of it. Uh, but how do I stop myself from doing it? I would say that like anything else in the Christian life, it's, it's the, it's the posture of repentance and drawing near to God and, and letting God's tools change you. That's a process and that takes time and you have to fight for that, which is why scripture is replete with be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Put on the full armor of God. That's Romans 12 and Ephesians 6. We're called to, to make war with ourselves. First Corinthians chapter 9, Paul says, I beat my body in a submission. Uh, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. The whole heart behind this is, is radically fighting for the faith, rather radically fighting for the, the development of the Christian heart that God promises us through the gospel by the power of his spirit. Uh, this is a matter of faith, young person. It's a matter of faith. Who are you going to believe? Who are you going to trust? You can continue to trust the blade or the, the file, whatever you're using. You can continue to trust that, or you can continue to trust God. And trusting God is an act of the will. It's moving in the direction that he prescribes, saying, I'm going to depend upon that and believe that you're going to do what you said you're going to do, which the ultimate promise is to change you, to conform you to the image and likeness of Jesus Christ, who wouldn't want you doing that. What verse? I, I, I'm with Pastor P.J. The first verse that came to my mind is 1 Corinthians 6. Um, in fact, let me, let me pull it up for you really quick because I think it's important that you hear this uh, read uh, because we don't want to mess this up. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19. Do you not, <clears throat> or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body idea for all of us then means that uh, we no longer, if we're Christians, we no longer have ownership over ourselves. Uh, what we do with our bodies, how we treat it, how we think, uh, how much rest we give it, that's a matter of saying, how do I best glorify God with the vessel that he's given me? And I think from this principle, we can easily surmise, well, uh, cutting is not a proper usage of, of the temple of the Holy Spirit that God has given us. I don't own myself. I don't, I don't have full rights over myself. Uh, God does. And what pleases God is by depending upon him and trusting him alone. Yeah, that's a really good question. I know that's not uh, probably not going to do do the full justice of what we're trying to accomplish here with whoever asked it. But if you, uh, whoever you are, please seek counsel with your leader or your pastor in this case. I'd be happy to help talk you and walk you through that. This next question is related to that. Um, actually, before I do that, uh, someone submitted a question, Pastor PJ. I think this one is yours. Um, someone said, is Lucille's good barbecue or not? Uh, Lucille's is not barbecue. Lucille's. It, so that, okay. here's, here's how I can, here's how I compare it y'all. Here's the, all right. I'm going to break it down for you. I can't okay. dance. Okay. 
and I know I can't dance. So I don't try to dance and tell people that I know how to dance because I know that I can't dance, right? Lucille's can't make barbecue, but they tell people they can make barbecue and they try to make barbecue. And it, it ends up being about as foolish as me trying to, to dance right now, which nobody wants to see. Nobody wants to experience that. And nobody really wants to experience Lucille's either. I'm done. I think we would like to see it though, Pastor PJ, to judge for ourselves. Could you please show that's, us? That's, that's not happening. <laughs> <laughs> I saw you dance at my wedding. Uh, that is not accurate. I did not dance at your wedding. I'm pretty sure we had a couple's dance. And I think you and Amanda danced. I left oh. before the dancing. When the dancing starts, the pastor departs. <laughs> That's so true. That is right? the compass pastor policy. It's exactly it that. All right. I don't think we need to spend a ton of time on this one, but I thought this is worth discussing. God calls us to keep our body a temple. If that means that we need our body, if that means that we need our body clean, like we shouldn't pierce our ears or have tattoos, then why do Christians still pierce their ears on purpose? And if so, if, if we are going to glorify God, if we have a verge tattoo, then is that a sin or why don't you go for that, Pastor PJ? Yeah, I, I'd say I, I think we need to redefine categories. It's it, your body is a temple in that it's supposed to be the, uh, a, a vessel of worship for, for God. Right. So the issue is not whether you have ear piercings or tattoos. The issue is, are you using your body in a way that you can, at the end of the day, with integrity, say, I am glorifying God. Uh, the issue of tattoos and piercings uh, for uh, for obviously is going to have gender implications there, especially with piercing your ears. Um, but overall, I'm going to point you to if you're still living at home, the authority of your parents on those matters. Is it a, a, an automatic sin if there's a guy with pierced ears or a tattoo on his arm with a scripture verse. No, I'm not, you can't make that argument. Um, and I don't think even pastor Mike would make that argument, but, um, you know, again, I'm going to point you to your parents on that one. It's what's your motivation? What's your drive? Uh, how are you treating your body as a vessel of worship to the Lord? Yeah. And I think that's a, that's an important point because I, I don't think you can point to a Christian and say, oh, man, look, they have tattoos or they have pierced ears and say, yeah, you're totally wrong for that. Um, There is some freedom in this. Uh, Not that you necessarily should go out and get a tattoo and get your ears pierced after this this Zoom meeting. Um, I would agree with Pastor PJ that you're under your parents' authority if you're under their house. But then I would also ask, um, what do these things say about me? If I got my ears pierced in a certain way or if I got a certain tattoo, what, what, what am I communicating to the watching world about my witness? Uh, and, and also keep in mind too, especially with tattoos and you guys know that I have tattoos, uh, that I got a long time ago. Uh, I, you know, I'm in my mid thirties now and I don't like them. <laughs> I wish I'd never got them. Oops. Hold on. I'm going to go backward. That's not supposed to be there yet. There we go. So keep in mind that your tastes will, will change and your future self may not appreciate the tattoo that your present self got. Um, Piercings, I know, are a little different, but again, what you wear and how you present yourself to the watching world is communicating something. And the question I think then is, are you communicating that you belong to God or are you communicating that you like attention or that you are something else? I mean, again, there's a lot of reasons for why you might pierce or why you might tattoo yourself, but I think there is freedom as a Christian. But again, the overriding question for me is going to be, what am I communicating with this? Does it glorify God? Am I applying 1 Corinthians 6 to this? That I'm glorifying God with my body. And that may or may not mean a tattoo or a piercing. Okay. The next question, I know there are a few that really want an answer to this. And and it's going to, I'm afraid of opening up a can of worms, but whoever this is, you're welcome. And I'm glad Pastor PJ is here to make a mess and clean it up because I'm not answering this question. Here you go, Pastor PJ. So predestination is correct, right? So there are some people that are predestined for hell and some that are predestined for heaven. That means that no matter what a person may do, if they are predestined for hell, they cannot change their future because God has already planned it out. So if that person tried to become a Christian, they would still fail, even if they genuinely wanted to follow Christ. What then secures any of us as Christians, given that we mess up all the time, though we really do want to be with Christ, love him and improve ourselves? Even me personally, I feel as if no matter how hard I try, I just can't do it. Can we as Christians be the person that I have described above? If so, why should we keep trying if no matter how hard we try, we may not be able, we may not even be destined for heaven? 
how do we know if we'll ever really make it at all? And there's just to add, add some more to this, Pastor PJ. There are uh, questions that are kind of circling the wagons around this topic. Um, for right. instance, I think one came in here. Uh, do we truly have free will or is everything we do predestined by God eliminating our free will? Uh, there, there's questions like that. Uh, da, 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 da. Yeah. And there's a, there was a whole host of things like that. So uh, let's talk about this in the context of what we, what we know to be true. And, and I think where some of the areas are, this, this person might be going awry. Yeah. So let's start at the bottom of your question that the, the end and then we'll work our way back up to the top. Um, this is actually one of my favorite topics to talk about, believe it or not. And we talked about sovereignty at the bridge retreat, the winter retreat. Um, and we talked about this very question, God's sovereignty over salvation. So we'll get there. But I, I want to start with your security in Christ. And Ephesians 1 tells mm -hmm. us that uh, when you believe in the gospel, so we need to start there. If you're concerned about where you are in Christ, we need to go back to the matter of faith and trust. And you need to lay out the gospel in front of yourself, what it, what it means that you're a sinner, um, that you need salvation, that Christ died on the cross for your sins, and that if you will repent from your sins and believe in Christ as your Savior, trust that he died that death that you deserve, that he rose from the dead uh, three days later, that you are saved. Okay, so it's a matter of 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 believing the gospel. That's what saves you, right? From that point, Paul says in Ephesians chapter one, if that's us, that we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit as a guarantee of our future inheritance. So that means if you believe the gospel, God seals you. And it's that idea of the wax seal that uh, was, was used to seal letters back in, in ancient Rome. And that seal could only be broken by the one who it was intended for. No one else could open that letter. And so when you are sealed with God's promised Holy Spirit, he is making a pledge that the guarantee of your future inheritance saying no one can break this seal. That means your salvation is secure in Christ. So as you're thinking about that, you can't do anything to secure your salvation besides believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's going to begin to transform your life. Um, I think part of the question here is what about the person who truly desires and seeks God and wants to be saved that isn't destined to be saved? I think we might be dealing with a false assumption there that there are actually people out there that genuinely desire God and desire salvation that God's going to turn away. Uh, we, we, when, when those that are, are lost are lost, they're, they're not lost because they're genuinely coming to the Lord in faith and repentance and God is saying, no, I don't want you. Uh, they are, are not truly even seeking after God. That's Paul's point in Romans when he says, there's no one who does good. There's no one who seeks after God. So what does this look like then? What are we dealing with? How are people saved? What is God's sovereignty, predestination? Where does that all fit in? Do I have free will or not? Uh, I want to point you in depth to Romans chapter nine. And so I'm going to encourage you on your own later on this morning, after this is done this afternoon, Read Romans 9. Romans 9 is a masterclass by Paul in answering this question. Because what Paul does is he begins to walk through and he anticipates every objection that you're going to have and he answers that objection. But at the beginning of Romans 9, here's what Paul's doing. Paul is lamenting. He's brokenhearted. And here's what he's lamenting. He says, I wish that I could go to hell if it would mean that all of my Jewish brothers would go to heaven. So you want to talk about a heart for the lost? Paul is saying, I would give up my salvation if it meant that everyone else could go to heaven. But then he goes on and he says, but the reality is there are Jews who are unbelievers that are not going to heaven, even though the Jews are supposed to be the promised people of God. And so Paul says, what gives? Has God's promise failed is what he says. And he begins to answer that starting in verse six of Romans chapter nine, and he goes down and he uses this analogy and he talks about God's choosing Isaac. He's, he talks about God's choosing Jacob and not Esau, even though nothing had been done at that point, that God is sovereignly choosing them. And then he gets into this illustration there, and I want to read it for you. He says in verse 19, another objection. He says, so you will say to me then, why does God still find fault with those that reject him? If God is sovereign over who goes to heaven? Why does he still find fault? The, the objector says, for who can resist his will? And here's Paul's answer. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use 
and another for dishonorable use. And here's the amazing part and where the argument spins and flips on its head in here in verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to, for the purpose that he might make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Here's what Paul just did there. He took this question and flipped it. In other words, it's not about us anymore. It's about God. And so this question, if are some predestined for hell while others are predestined for heaven, here's the response to that. God does everything he does for one reason, and that is to manifest his glory. And what Paul is arguing in Romans chapter 9 is he is saying part of God displaying his glory is us seeing and appreciating in a fearful way his wrath and his power. And his wrath and his power are most clearly seen in the eternal destruction of those who reject Christ as their savior. They're fully culpable for that rejection. They are rejecting him, but God has set that in place and sovereignly ordained that so that we who are saved would look at his wrath and we would step back and glorify him even more for his mercy in our lives. So here's, I guess, to to boil it down is this, your salvation believer is not about you. God didn't save you so that you would go to heaven. God didn't save you so that you would be there with him. God saved you to display his glory. God saved you so that you would be an object of, of his glory, an object of his mercy, so that you would be able to, to, to point to God and say, God, you are amazing and you are good and you are great and you are awesome. Those that aren't saved, those that aren't predestined, God still has a purpose for them and it is to display his glory and it's to display his glory through his wrath being poured out upon them. It's uncomfortable and I get that it's uncomfortable. Um, but just because we're uncomfortable with it uh, doesn't mean that it's, it's not what the Bible clearly teaches us. And it doesn't mean that God is selfish. It doesn't mean that God is cruel. No, God is after what he's always been after, and he's never made any apologies about it, and that is his glory. And our salvation is about his glory. And those that are going to end up in hell are still about his glory. Yeah, and what you're saying, Pastor PJ, is so offensive to our modern spirit. We, we don't like hearing that because it does undermine us and it does exalt God. Uh, but briefly, then answer, answer, for, the, answer for us, um, why is it better for us? Because I know this is one of our questions not too long ago. Why is it better for us to seek God's glory rather than our own? Why is it so offensive to God that we, let me try to rephrase it the way that the person did. Why is it okay for God to be this big and for lack of, I don't mean this obviously, but to be an egomaniac, but not for us. Why does he demand our glory? Uh, his, why does he demand glory? And we can't do the same. Right. Yeah. It, it, ultimately, this is a question of, of God's uh, character. Um, he has to be that way. If God were ever after the glory of another, he would cease to be God. See, God, by very definition, is the one who's worthy of every ounce of glory ever. And so when we fail to give God all of the glory, then we are, are falling short of his standard, right? I mean, we need to even, guys, understand sin in an even broader perspective. We think about you know, actions and things like that. But when we fail to give God the glory that he's due, even that in and of itself is a sin that demands the eternal flames of hell. And yet God is gracious and merciful to us in the cross. So why is it okay for God to be an an egomaniac? Because he, he has to be in order to continue to be God because he is the one that is, is fully worthy and deserving of that. And so for God to reflect his glory, deflect his glory onto anything or anyone else would be for God to elevate something or someone above himself, which would cause him to cease to be God. Uh, And therefore we would be in an even greater heap of trouble than we would be in in our current desire to say, well, I want glory when I can't have glory. Right. Yeah. And and again, that God, that God centered view, that high view of God is, is what keeps our church together in a lot of ways. Uh, we don't look at scripture and reinterpret it from the lens of how does this benefit us or how can we take this and make it about us? We look at scripture and say, man, this is all about God and his glory. That's why we sing songs about that. We don't sing songs about how awesome we are. Uh, we sing songs about how awesome God is. 
And when we do look at how awesome we are, it's because we were saying, man, look at what God has done in us and through us. It still goes back to the fountain, which is God himself. Someone asked, how can we better evangelize knowing this information about predestination? And I would say, really, it should do two things for you. One, it should give you confidence that God is at work no matter no matter what you're doing. Uh, God's going to save people, uh, and he wants to use you for that. But two, that doesn't mean you're going to discriminate. Spurgeon once said, uh, I can't pick up someone's shirt and look for a yellow stripe on their back and see whether or not they're saved. We preach the gospel to all people, regardless of race, ethnicity, or background, and we trust him to do the work. His word promises that he's got people set aside that he's going to save. And so that gives us confidence in our evangelistic efforts. Um, one, one clarifying question, Pastor PJ, give us a quick answer to this one. Does God predestine us by looking into the future and knowing who will follow him? Or is it simply his choosing and desire? Quick answer. Yeah. Yeah. No, he chooses based not on our actions, but based on his own, uh, his own free will, not ours, his own free will to, to decide who will be saved and who won't, not based on what we'll do in the future, but from eternity past before the foundation of the world, uh, according to Ephesians one, we were chosen in Christ. That's awesome. Okay. Uh, let me turn one more, th- that direction. one more thing on, can I just one more thing on that real quick on the evangelism thing? What I often encourage our college students to do is believe like a Calvinist and witness like an Arminian. In other words, believe <laughs> in God's sovereignty, believe in election, believe in predestination because it's biblical, but go out and witness to everyone like anyone out there could come to Christ, faith in Christ because we don't know who it's going to be. That's a great, that's a great encouragement. Okay. Um, I do, there's, there's several questions coming in and guys, I'm so thankful that you guys are submitting so many good questions. Uh, I do want to get to as many of them as possible. So for our sake, if you could be concise, that would be helpful for me as I try to sift through which questions we're going to attack. But here's a good concise one, Pastor PJ, go for this. Was it possible for people other than the Israelites to be saved before Christ's birth? Go. Yes. Uh, Let's just look at one example, Rahab, right? She was a prostitute. She was outside of Israel and she became part of Israel and also part of ultimately the line of Christ. So yes. That was going to be my answer too. Next question. A girl who is a non-Christian asked me out on a date. How do I nicely reject her and then follow up with an invite to church? (laughs) Not only is this guy getting asked out by non-Christians, but then he's like trying to Jesus juke her and be like, hey, you should come to church with me though, girl. Right. (laughs) <laughs> right. Yeah. What would you say, Pastor well, well, First, make sure you do say no. Um, missionary dating is not uh, <laughs> sanctioned by the church or by God. Um, okay. Yeah. So, yeah. That's I, actually I, a good question. But but why is that the case? What text would you go well, to? Well, you know, the, the the most common one is we're not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And if you want to argue so with me, well, that's talking six. about right. That's talking about business, or that's talking about marriage fine, but put it into practice now in your dating life too. I mean, it's not as though God is, if, if God doesn't want business partners to be together as believer, unbeliever, he definitely doesn't want marriage partners to be together as believer and unbeliever. So make sure you do reject him or her. If this is a girl being asked out or, or a guy, if this is you being asked out and then you just say, Hey, uh, you know what? No thanks on the date, but we've got uh, true North this weekend. Would you be interested in coming to church? I mean, I don't think you have to make it any bigger than that. Don't like, reserve her seat and hold her hand during the worship or anything like that. But um, yeah, that's, that's encouraging. Yeah. That's, that's a, that's a, that's a very tactful response. I like that because it doesn't make a bigger deal of it than it has to be, which is why I think that's wisdom. You don't want to make this a huge deal and try to explain, well, you know, you're, you're not, you're not elect. I'm elect. Therefore I can't date you. Avoid all that. Keep it simple. Don't don't lift up their shirt. Like Spurgeon talked about. That's not, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> for anything. There's no yellow stripe. No yellow no. stripe. Okay. Here is a question that could potentially derail us, but I do think it's important enough to answer because it's it's hitting a topic that everyone's interested about right now. Um, why does modern Christianity spend so much time criticizing the LGBT, and I would add Q plus community, rather than focus on other sins or issues such as greed or poverty? Why? What is your opinion on gay conversion therapy and teen homelessness due to parental homophobia. There's a lot of questions in there. So let's try to answer it as generally as we can, but go for it, Pastor PJ. I think the number one thing is, I I don't know that this is a one-way street. I think the LGBTQ community is, uh, is picking fights is the, maybe the wrong word, but 
they're such a vocal group right now that the church has been put in a position to have to answer to that over and over and over again. Here's a, a case in point. This question comes up, right? This question was not written by Pastor Rod and thrown in here. This is a question that's coming up because it's it's a hot button issue in our culture. The church has always responded to hot button issues in the culture because we we want to be relevant to where we're at and, and bring biblical truth to bear. So I think that's why we're, we're not saying that this is a worse sin than other sins. Um, you know, if people were, were throwing questions out here specifically about greed or poverty, we would ad- address that as, as well. I, I sense a little bit of social gospel underlinings here uh, on, on some of that. And, and that's a separate issue, but second one, gay conversion therapy team, homelessness due to parental homophobia. We're going to love everybody no matter what. Uh, but if somebody comes into here, who's struggling with anger, I'm going to counsel them biblically about their sin of anger. If somebody comes in here who is, uh, who is gay or homosexual, I'm going to counsel them from what the Bible has to say about the sin of homosexuality. And that's what we're dealing with. It is a sin and it needs to be addressed like any other. Um, it's just, it's, it's in our face, in our culture and in our society today. Yeah. Amen to that. Uh, we talk about it a lot because it comes up a lot and we want to respond faithfully to what God has said. And that means that we are often tackling some of these difficult questions. Um, but again, not to the exclusion of other sins uh, that the Bible talks about. And that's going to, that's going to happen as a regular function of the church going through scripture. Uh, we're going to talk about lying. We're going to talk about greed, or uh, we're going to talk about laziness, which often leads to poverty or addiction, which leads to poverty. There's a lot of, there's a lot of things that the Bible speaks of. It's holistic in its approach. And so we talk about what, what God talks about. Um, there's a lot, there's a lot there. And, that, and that's a big question. Thank you for whoever asked that. There's a lot more we could say about that, but I do want to get a starting place on that. And maybe when the next time we do this, we could, we could continue diving into that. Um, okay. Let me take a quick look at our questions. See anything on, here, here's a quick one, Pastor PJ. Does God worship himself? <laughs> Does God worship himself? Uh, I feel like that's, my brain is twisted around on top of itself on that question. Um, God is always about his own source and you would understand why that is the case. Okay. Uh, I mean, God is always after his own glory. Everything he does is about his own glory. And so in that sense, is he attributing glory to himself? If that's how we're defining worship uh, of God, then yes, would be my answer to that question. I, I think yes. I think yes. Yeah, I, I would amen with the, I, I feel that's the same. Um, if you have a friend who is, okay, we're going back to LGBTQ. Um, if you have a friend who is LGBT and you are saved, should you still spend time with this person and try to point them to Christ? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just, yeah, you, you, as Christians, we're not called to, to get into our holy huddles and our, our, you know, Christian cliques and, and hang out together and not engage with the lost world around us. Jesus prayed in John 17 that we would be uh, in the world, but not of the world. Um, and so to continue to have relationships, friendships with people who are part of the LGBTQ community, I, there's nothing wrong with that at all. As, as long as what we're not doing is applying approval of sinful behavior or, um, or, you know, even just consent or passivity on it, I think you need to always be uh, working to share the gospel with them as hopefully we are with every single unbeliever in our life. Uh, but do you have to retreat from those relationships? No, not at all. Yeah. And I would say that it, it requires wisdom to know when to, to, when to press and when to pull back. Um, especially if you're the same gender as that person, you need to be aware that, you know, that their feelings and emotions could be, could be involved and that could complicate things. So with all things, I agree with Pastor PJ, but with all things wisdom, you're going to have to know in that situation and talk with a, a godly adults who can help you think through uh, what's what kind of relationship and what kind of tone that relationship is taking. Okay, since we're already in the weeds, let me just ask a couple more questions. Um, here's a good one about abortion. Um, two questions. Um, why does God allow abortions first and foremost? And then in, in light of Deuteronomy 139, do aborted babies and infants who die in the womb or very young go to heaven? Two questions, but related. Uh, let's start with the abortion. Does, why does God allow abortions? Would your, would your answer change at all uh, when it comes to God allowing evil? No, I mean, it's, it's going to be the same categories. Why does God allow murder? Why does God allow rape? Why does God allow theft? Why does God allow any of those things. It's, it's part of the fallen world that we live in and the brokenness of the world that we live in, the consequences of sin. 
um, in the world that we live in. Yeah, and I would also say that, that that sin manifests itself in people, especially. Much of that sin looks like a like a, a desire for autonomy, a desire for convenience, a desire for uh, really to be to be the commander of your own soul. I, I've heard a lot of reasons for why people get abortions, and some of them, as you guys saw during the, one of the sermons I preached recently, are just nonchalant. They're you know they're doesn't matter. It's not, it's not a human being anyway. And I think that's another reason why people do it. It's a matter of ignorance. I mean, there's, there's so many things wrapped up into that. Uh, but at the heart of it is sinful human nature. We are sinners and we are inclined toward evil. And in this case, sin often manifests itself in uh, which makes right. And if I'm stronger and bigger than you, I can take you out because I'm stronger and bigger than you. That's it. Now, when, when God loses his position as the, the, the primary legislator of our community, that means it's like, okay, whatever you want then, do whatever you want, including taking your own child's life, if that's what you want to do. Well, then the question then in follow-up to that, Pastor PJ, is in light of Deuteronomy 139, uh, in light of Deuteronomy 139, uh, do aborted babies and infants who die in the womb or very young go to heaven? What are your thoughts about uh, pe- young people who die going to heaven? Yeah, uh, the Bible is sufficiently muddy on that. And yet I think there are, are good uh, verses like the one that you pointed to in Deuteronomy 139 that give us reason to, to be hopeful that that yes is the answer to that question, that they do go to heaven. Even David saying to um, to his servants who were wondering, why is he getting up at when his son has died? And he said, look, I, my son can't come back to me, but I will go to my son. Some look at that and say that that's him pointing to the fact that, that his son would be uh, with him in, in heaven. Um, Deuteronomy 139 is is about a, a covenant promise of entering the land more than it is about, I think, eternity uh, there. But can we draw principles? I think we can draw principles. So I think that the the general lean of scripture is towards answering that question with yes, that that aborted babies, stillborn babies, even you know young infants and children who die apart from Christ would go to heaven um, because of God's special dispensation for them. Uh, but is there a hard line chapter and verse that we can point to and say, this is a hundred percent what the Bible says. It's just harder there to, to point to that. Right. And I, I agree with Pastor PJ, although I, I am, I am hopeful and I am, I'm trusting in God to be good and righteous and just in all of his ways. Um, Deuteronomy one thirty nine, in addition to Jonah chapter four, uh, gives me a sense of confidence that God treats people differently according to their level of knowledge. And that, includes those people who are unable to uh, to functionally make a decisive decision either way for uh, living a life of sin or living a life for Christ, or in this particular instance, living a life for the covenant God, for Yahweh under the covenant of, of Israel. So ultimately we don't, we can't pound our fist on the table and say, this is exactly how it happens. But I, I, I feel confident that God's going to do what is right and just and good. Um, and those texts give me a sense of peace about the matter that God's going to take those babies and those young ones, or even the mentally, uh, what's the proper terminology today, the uh, mentally disabled and show mercy and grace. According to those, again, the, the, the distinction in my mind is, is this, those who have no functional ability to decisively turn their affection, turn their lives to either Christ, uh, the gospel, or toward their own sinful inclinations. Um, and some of you guys might be thinking about the age of accountability. Um, I wouldn't necessarily affirm that aspect. I would say it's not an age so much as it is a a mental understanding. Uh, Can you mentally understand the categories of good and evil? Can you mentally uh, turn to Christ and understand the gospel or turn towards sin and live for yourself? Okay. Guys, you have asked some really good questions and the questions are still pouring in. but I am going to start landing the plane here now. Uh, I want to thank Pastor PJ for joining us and being a part of this conversation. We're so grateful to have you, Pastor PJ. Thanks for being such a great sport and having all of these, uh, these hard questions thrown at you and answering so, so easily, it seems like. We're grateful to you, brother. All right, thanks, man. I appreciate you guys having me on here. It's been fun.
Uh, it's been a blast. And thank you everyone else who submitted questions and spent this time with us. Uh, what's next? Uh, I'll be emailing you guys with the, oops, I'll be emailing you guys with the next steps for what we're going to do this next weekend. So hang in there. Uh, please stay in contact with each other. Please continue to do things like house party, continue to do things like, uh, uh, what's that called? Marco Polo, whatever else you guys have available. And next weekend, if we do Zoom again, I promise you we will have room for more people because you guys hit the ceiling pretty quickly. So uh, sorry about that for those who were unable to make it during the live, the live shooting of this. Thank you so much again, guys. I'm going to pray for us, and then you are dismissed. Let me pray. God, thanks so much for the, the morning. Oh, what, a, what a great blessing it is for us to be together over Zoom, uh, a technology that allows us to not only uh, – hear each other's voices, but also see each other's faces and to even go through uh, questions and comments about some of the really challenging aspects of, of living under a fallen humanity and learning what your word says about those things. God, please make us wise. Your scripture is not silent on a whole host. Of, in fact, all of life is touched by your word. It's not a matter of whether your word talks to it. It's a matter of whether or not we're willing to think deeply about your scriptures and how that applies. So please give us a mind that, that does that, that is, not a, uh, it is not lazy or superficial, but is willing to dive deep into what your scripture says in order to think, uh, to think about these profound issues from the lens of what your word says. We thank you, God, for Pastor PJ and his ministry. Pray you bless him. Please help him continue to grow the bridge and men's Bible study. And as he prepares to plant, please let his planting be successful and that you would draw a lot of people to yourself through his ministry. We're thankful for him, God. Thanks again for everyone else who's here. I pray you bless them. Help them to get into your word, to learn, and to grow, and to glorify yourself in their, in their lives. Thank you so much for this time, Lord. We give it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys. Have a great rest of your Sunday. I'll see you guys again soon. Thank <music> you.